have a wonderful crowd this evening, but more importantly, and we hope that this meeting tonight will do at least two things. Number one, that we'll preach the word in such a way that before we leave the auditorium tonight, that everyone present will have been spiritually uplifted who desires to be. You cannot be spiritually uplifted, really, unless you desire to be and the word of God is effectively taught. The second thing we wish to accomplish is that all men not, might know their standing and they might be drawn by the power of the gospel to Christ Jesus himself being saved before they leave this building if they have never named the Lord and Savior Christ in submissive act of baptism. Now we'll talk about that as we go through the lesson. This evening I want us to discuss a subject that I felt compelled to preach because of the last two or three years of all the things that have gone on, there has been much discouragement in the church of Christ. Most congregations have experienced this discouragement, this spiritual apathy that sometimes comes from really not only the circumstances that we undergo, but really Satan through these events causing discouragement. Now we must remember that our hope, our hope is of the highest importance. For example, the Bible says that Christ in you is the hope of all glory, Colossians 1 and 27. The Bible teaches us that if we lose hope, we lose our ability to stay faithful to God because there are three pillars in which Christianity rests upon. Paul would make mention of that in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. Sometimes we preach much about faith and much about love, but maybe hope is underestimated in our minds and in our preaching. Hope is not the compass, that's faith. Hope is the anchor of your soul. So if we lose hope, then our soul is like a ship in a, in a storm at sea tossed everywhere around and we're not able, even by faith, we're not able to make it over onto heaven's shores because we'll have a shipwreck along the way. We can list this evening a lengthy, a lengthy list of various reasons which cause discouragement. But if we did that, we would not be out of here before midnight. And really, it doesn't matter what those things are, whether it be financial turmoil, whether it be uh, a marriage that's on the rocks, whether it be you're in a congregation that things are not going right, whether it be your children giving you problems, whatever it would be, uh, br brotherhood problems, whatever it would be, it simply would fit into the same category that we cannot allow ourselves to be discouraged no matter what's going on in the world, whether it be government or politics or whether it be local issues, whatever the case may be, the sermon tonight, I hope, will lift us up and remind us of the great hope we have in Christ Jesus. Now, as I do often, I want to travel back to the Old Testament. Now, the Bible, interestingly enough, in Romans 15, 4, a verse we've heard quoted all of our lives, emphasizes hope. 
Sometimes we emphasize the things written a fourth time. That's true, but those Old Testament events were written for a reason. And part of that is that we can stand on the doctrine of hope. Hebrews 6 reminds us. Do you remember that some were becoming slothful? Some of those Jewish people who had exited and become Christians, they were becoming slothful in serving Jesus. A.D. 70 is right around the corner. Many of them were forsaking the assembly altogether, Hebrews 10 and 25. And the writer of Hebrews says, do not be slothful. Why? Because in doing so, you are disavowing yourselves from the doctrine of hope, which is based upon promises. When you think about the promises of God, your hope should be elevated. And did God, did God when he promised Abraham that he did not swear by any greater, the text says, because there was none greater to swear by, so he swore by himself. Now, when God promised Abraham that he would be taken into another country and through him a mighty and wonderful series of events would happen, and so forth, all the promises that God made Abraham came to pass, every last one of them. Abraham had hope. That's why we want to go back to the Old Testament and look at events tonight. Now, I've chosen Joshua for the event to study tonight. That many people who did not make it back then, do you know what the reason was? They lost hope. And when you lose hope, your anchor in your ship disappears. When it's gone, then your faith begins to crumble. Now you've lost your navigation ability and you've lost your anchor. You truly are lost at sea. And there's many folk in the world. There's many folk that have been lost at sea all their lives. But the trouble is, many in the church are going back to the world and they're now lost again in the world because they've lost hope and they've lost faith. So we need to redirect ourselves to what is biblical hope. Hope is defined as earnest expectation. You should expect in a very earnest and fervent way to lay hold upon eternal life and make it to heaven as a Christian. You should desire with a great zeal and a great passion for God, a great sincerity in your heart, a great confidence that you should be able to lay hold on this doctrine of hope. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19 talks about this. Verse 19 says, which hope we have. What hope? Well, verse 18 says there are two immutable things. Number one, that God cannot lie. And because he cannot lie, remember, because he keeps his promises. He cannot swear by any greater, earlier the Bible says, because he swears by himself. And just like when he promised to Abraham it came to pass, what he promises us will come to pass. In fact, the Old Testament, Hebrews 7 and 19, could never, even in all the great promises of the Old Testament, make the people perfect. The law could not bring perfection, but a better hope did. And we have that better hope tonight, Hebrews 8 and 6, and the best mediator ever, Christ Jesus our Lord. The law came by Moses, John 1 and 17, but grace and truth by Christ Jesus. So here we are in Hebrews 6 and 18, two immutable things which God who cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, if he gives his word, if he gives an oath, if he gives a testimony, you can take it to the bank that it's real. And what did he say? He said that there's a strong constellation the King James uses. Some translations, ASB 1901, will say 
encouragement. He gives us a strong encouragement. For what reason? So that we, through the doctrine of hope, the earnest expectation, can make it. Those of us who have laid hold on this refuge, who have fled, the King James says, who have fled to this refuge, lay hold on hope. Which hope we have, verse 19, as an anchor of the soul. So your body or your soul, that is, your spiritual inner man of your body, your soul, that inner man, is likened unto a ship. Faith is your compass and the anchor being your hope. And folks, you have to have both. We're not even talking about love. That's obvious. That's another lesson for another day. But you have to have hope to make it to heaven. Some people have the right Bible knowledge and we ask the question, well, we know they know the truth. What happened to them? It could very likely be that in some way or another, they lost hope and in doing so, their ship has drifted back into the world and back to the place where Demas left Paul, 2 Timothy 4. So we ought to be very careful. And here's one. Here's one tonight. The book of Joshua. We cannot be ashamed of our hope. Psalm 119 verse 116 says that. For our hope, Psalm 146 verse 5, is in the Lord. Can't be ashamed of it. If you're not talking about Christ and the church throughout your week, I would ask you why. Are you ashamed of speaking his name? When's the last time that you've asked someone to services? When's the last time you've invited someone to your home around a dinner table and tried to get them to study the Bible? When's the last time you sent a card or, or something? We ought not to be ashamed of our relationship and the testimony found in the scripture of Jesus Christ. Now, if every member of the church was out sowing the seed. This building wouldn't hold them all in just a few months. Are you sowing the seed of the kingdom, brother? Sometimes because we don't have hope, we don't see and we can't imagine how other people would ever have that hope. We need the hope of God in Christ. 1 Peter 1 and 3, do you know we are begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ? Do you know that this hope, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, uh, grants unto us, grants unto us great power in our lives. This hope is not based upon some fickle fad, some movement, some, some here today and gone tomorrow religion. The true hope that is in Christ and in the church of Christ to this refuge to which we flee, Hebrews 6 and 18, is built and based upon the sworn testimony and divine promises that Peter alludes to in 2 Peter 1 and 4. The Bible says, great and exceedingly precious promises. Now this is something that I ought to study the rest of my life and you as well. To be partakers of the divine nature. Have you ever thought about that? No, we're too busy in the world. We're too busy doing everything else but getting into the Word of God sometimes. And here is a passage that the ripest scholar could spend the entirety of their life on and never, never mine out of it all the rich truths that are therein. To hear all the great and precious promises culminating in the fact that we are partakers of the divine nature. So much more challenging than any athletic contest. So much more intriguing and so much more interesting to look into. No wonder the Bible says that the 
angels desire to look into the realm of salvation. This hope that we're talking about tonight is not some cheap fix, not some talk of a car salesman. Hope there's no used car salesman here tonight. Take it as it was intended. But you see my point. This is not some slick-talking, quick, fat, uh, fickle, or fad, or, or some gesture. We're talking about your soul. Why is hope important? I'll tell you why. Because someday, something's going to happen to me or you that could be so devastating that if we're not very careful, we'll lose hope. We'll shrink back under perdition. But the Hebrew writer said, we are not likened unto them, Hebrews 10 and 39, that shrink back unto perdition. But we are them to the believing of the saving of the soul. So here we are in Joshua. Moses has passed away, we know. Now, sometimes we lose heart and we are overly concerned about who is going to take on the torch of tomorrow in the church. We've had the same discussions often, right? Who is going to be our next evangelist? We need a lot more than what we have today. Who is going to be our next elders right here at McCoinsville? Who's going to be the elders over at Center Grove and all the other congregations in Jackson County? Who's going to be the next deacons? As men begin to age out, it's obvious that we need to begin immediately in preparation for these people. But here's what I also know. That while we ought to train, obviously, to fill these places, I also know that the great and mighty hand of God, Joshua 4 and 24, and the providence of God raises up men at the right time. And when Moses was on his way out, don't you know that God already knew Joshua was on his way in? Moses has died. Joshua comes along, and he takes the torch, so to speak, and he does an excellent job in leading Israel. What I want you to see tonight is you can have hope for many reasons. First and foremost, you can have hope because the great providence, the gentle manipulation of God's concern in every affair of the world and in your individual person, God is very concerned and he is very aware of your needs. And he, according to the Sermon on the Mount, as we quoted earlier in the Bible class this morning, he takes care of the birds that fly. He takes care of the lilies of the field. He knows the hairs upon your head. He knows everything about you. And our Heavenly Father will sustain us all. David said he had never seen the righteous begging for bread. God will take care of his saints. That does not mean that we'll be free from trouble and toil. That does not mean that our life will be easy and without any problems. But it means the needs will be met of the saints of the Lord's house. It means that if we will depend upon our Father, His providence as a whole, that we can generate a great hope. You know, one of the things that I admire most about reading uh, ancient things about history, some of the most downtrodden people, whether it be slaves or, or whether it be people of very minimal means, sometimes had some of the great religious fervor within them and a great desire to worship and to sing. Why? Because they had a hope. They had a hope that could not be taken from them. Speaking of that kind of hope, the Bible makes it very clear when Jesus spoke to the apostles that the world has a hope, but it can be taken from you. But there is a hope and there is a peace that's so gentle and so powerful 
that the world cannot give it and the world cannot take it away. Now tonight, when we think about Joshua, because the things written aforetime were written for our learning, do you not understand that they were given the land, the children of Israel? It was theirs. God had already determined that it was theirs for the taking. If we compare the event of Joshua or the events with the canopy of the larger Christian economy, we will see obvious parallels that ought to whet our appetite to serve God because the Hebrew writer said that as great as those things were in the Old Testament, he made it very clear they could not bring perfection, the law, Hebrews 7 and 19. Therefore, we have now a better hope that did. That did. That did what? That does bring perfection. What do you mean? It brings completion. It brings stability. It brings a greater hope than any of our Old Testament heroes had. Because we live not in the moonlight or starlight age of salvation where the prophets through the lens of time foretold it. We live, young people, in the glorious days of the full and absolute reality of the scheme of redemption. If any generation God would require great things of, would it not be our own? For all the blessings that he hath given us. And here we are tonight encouraging us not to turn back not to give up hope, have that earnest expectation. Leadership has to have it. Joshua had it. And here is Joshua, and he is going to lead the children of Israel. He reminds them in verse 7, do not turn to the right, do not turn to the left, observe all things that the law of Moses has said to do. Folks, may I remind us all, we have men and women among our ranks that do not believe that the doctrine of obedience is necessary. A person told me here a while back, I was preaching, I mean, I was really getting with it down in Texas, and somebody said, well, you're trying to make the new law another old law. Why? Because you teach obedience. Obedience is not necessary. Now, wait a minute. Do you like how the devil gets involved in details? When somebody says something, you cannot just accept it at face value. You have to dig into it, and that includes what I say. Now, who is trying to make the New Testament a second volume of the old? I never have done that. In fact, I always make it very clear that the old law was merely a shadow of the good things to come, Hebrews 10 and 1. But what they mean is this. They really don't want to have to do anything in regards or be responsible or accountable to God. But folks, I'm here to tell you, in the Old and New Testament, God has required man to obey him. Ecclesiastes 12 and 13, the Bible says, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Someone says, that's Old Testament. We'll take it to the New. 1 John 5 and 3, keep his commandments. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus spoke it. Folks, there's commandments in the Old and the New Testament. James says there is a royal law. And we are under the law of Christ. And we must teach people that God expects us to obey him in whatever covenant we are under. Now, we're not going to obey the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. We're not going to impose dietary restrictions upon the people because that was, a, that was an economy that was in vogue for 1,500 years, taken out at the cross, Colossians 2 and 14. There was a reason, the Hebrew writer said, 
that there is a better hope. But look at this. Just like Joshua 1.7, a good leader reminds the people, if we're going to serve God, if we're going to possess the land that He gave us, if we're going to go out and to, to do great things for God, the first thing we all have to agree upon, whether that's to the children of Israel or today to the church of Christ, the first thing we have to do is stand still long enough to consult God in how He would have us proceed. If we start walking and we start moving and doing things and yet we have not consulted the divine guidance, everybody's a loser. Someone said, well, no, not necessarily, you know. I said, no, it is necessarily. Because when Achan, do you all remember this? When Achan took up the cursed thing, who did it affect? It affected everybody in the camp. So yes, he'll be held individually responsible between he and God in the day of judgment, but it's also the case that our actions affect the whole. So leadership must remind the people, if we're going to go take the city for God, Jericho, straightly shut up, if we're going to go possess the entire land of Canaan, great, because that's what God wants us to do if we are in Josh, excuse me, Joshua chapter 1. That's what they're commanded to do. But a good leader says, all right, I'm going to remind everybody, we're not going to the right. Any of our anti-brethren listen tonight? We're not going to the right with them. We don't want to be stricter. Someone said, well, the stricter we are, the better off we are. That's not true. Strictness is not righteousness. Righteousness is doing the will of God by faith. And the will of God does not need to be added to. Adding to the word of God is just as wrong as loosening from the word of God. So we're not going to go to the right or the left. Someone said, well, if I had to pick one, I'd go to the right. Well, if you're driving a car, let me ask you a question. And there's a cliff on the right and a cliff on the left. Which cliff would you rather go off of? I'd rather stay on the road. People give these weird hypothetical situations. We don't have, we, we can do more than right or left. Jesus gives us the other option. We can stay on the straight road. Not straight as a straight line, straight as difficult to enter and hard to stay on. So here we are. Josh reminds the people we are not going to veer. And, and they're going with God's tutelage, God's help. They're going to be allowed to pass over. And you know, there's going to be a time in which this miracle is talked about later on. And the question would be asked, well, why did you establish these memorial stones? Why were these 12 stones put there? And that would give them an opportunity to go back and to teach their children, their grandchildren, how the goodness of God allowed them to pass over. And you know they're going to come and they're going to take Jericho. Well, i got a question for everyone tonight. If God gave it to them, why would they have to do anything? It says God gave it to them. I hear on the radio a lot of preachers today. I call them 50 cent preachers. They're not sound as a dollar. They're 50 cent preachers. They know just enough to get it close, but it's not right. Because when I read the Old Testament, y'all understand the Old Testament was written for our learning. We learn about how God deals with people. He said to the children of Israel, this land is yours. It's by inheritance. It's a gift. You don't earn it and you didn't deserve it. But by the way, if you want to go over there and possess it and enjoy it, that's the 
King James says, enjoy it. If you want to possess it and enjoy it, you've got to go take it. And when they, by faith, obeyed God, they took Jericho. Great walls. The city was straightly shut up, shut out. But they come over to Ai and they can't take it. Why? Because they had violated the commandment of God. Joshua 1 and 7 told them not to go to the right or the left. Achan got some sticky fingers and infected everybody. See, God told them it was theirs, but they had to proceed according to the book. Now, tonight, if we make a quick parallel here, if you want to become a Christian, isn't it true? John 19 and 30, we preached this morning, it is finished. Christ had a finished work at Calvary. You could not add to his work in one bit in that sense. His death upon Calvary was necessary for the atonement of our sins. And it's the unspeakable gift Paul would allude to in 2 Corinthians. An unspeakable gift. But nobody is going to obtain salvation tonight if they don't come to God on his terms. Someone says, well, but it's a free gift. Well, it may be a free gift, all right. All the more reason for you to come on his terms. You had nothing to do with the sacrifice. So why are you sitting there trying to act like that you know more than God? Romans 1 says, professing themselves to be wise, what did they become? Fools. So we come to God on his terms. And tonight, if there's not anything you remember, if you're outside of Christ, you've never become a Christian, if there's nothing you remember in the lesson, remember this. Salvation is free. Salvation is wonderful. Salvation is only in Christ and through Christ and because of Christ. But they could not take the city and they could not possess the land unless under the direction of Joshua, under the teaching of the scripture, they by faith obeyed God. And tonight, you cannot possess salvation. You cannot enjoy and rejoice in the Christian life. You cannot be heaven bound unless... You under the leadership of Jesus because Joshua was a type of foreshadowing of Jesus. You cannot be led by Joshua to the physical land of Canaan because you're not a Jew. And we're not under the Old Testament. But you can be led by Christ in his church to the eternal land of Canaan if you will surrender your stubborn pride and will to Christ Jesus and come to him on his terms. You're going to come to him like they did at Jericho? There's nothing or no one that can prevent you from salvation. I don't care who on earth tries to stop salvation. It'll never happen to the person who asks, seeks, and knocks according to the will of God. God will provide a way, I believe it. Why? Because they didn't, the world didn't think they could take Jericho. Because when you access divine power from on high, anything in that realm is possible spiritually speaking but now when you come over to ai and you start thinking my grandmother used to say too big for your britches you ever heard that expression in tennessee the children of israel were fat and sassy they got too big for their britches they got the big head well we did at jericho what no one thought we could do yes but now there's sin in the camp sin in the camp will destroy us we've heard so much preaching the last 20 years in the brotherhood at large, 1 Peter 2 and 17, 
Really, it's developing what I call a cheap grace. If it were not for the grace of God, every last one of us would burn in hell. There's no other way to say that. It is because of the grace of God, right, that we can stand here this evening. But Paul would also make this very clear. Because grace is so free. I didn't say cheap. I said free. Because grace is a gift. Because grace is so beautiful and rich in its depth and its meaning and its application to us. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit through Paul anticipated someone going the wrong direction and misusing that doctrine. And thus the divine admonition reminds us to be balanced. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Anybody have a false idea that grace is a license to sin? And you can go cheat on your wife, drink down at the bar and do all kinds of things and slide in here on Sunday say, Woo! Grace of God. No, that's not the grace of God. That's lasciviousness. That is turning the grace of God into a, into a wicked form of thought where the heart begins to be darkened and, and distanced from God. Grace does not offer you a get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace does not offer you a license or a permit. Grace is the wonderful favor of God. But Paul would say, by grace are ye saved, but watch this, through faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the word of God does not lead men into sin. It leads men away from sin. That's why Titus 2 and 11 says, For the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Notice this, teaching us. You mean grace teaches? I thought grace was just a feeling. But see, people think sometimes their own thoughts. The scripture says grace hath appeared. What does that mean? Jesus comes on the scene. That's the greatest and highest form of grace that the world has ever known. But it teaches us. Christ taught us this. The apostles taught us this. The entire system of the gospel teaches this. Because we have received grace, we therefore shun what is wrong. Remember the song we used to sing, If I Walk in the Pathway of Duty? And it talks about if I shun the wrong and do the right. The Bible says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and just in this present world. So here it is. In Joshua, the people are reminded that God gave them the land, but to possess it. They had to be in obedience to the will of God and they could not be people of fear. I wonder sometimes today if we have in conservative congregations too many people who fear the world. Oh, we're going to go by the Bible in our assemblies. We know the word of God, but that we operate almost out of fear. We're afraid of what others may say or think about us if we completely follow the Bible. I mean, will they think we're fanatics? Will they think we're Bible thumpers? Will they think we're dated or, or out of touch with society? I am not ashamed, Romans 1.16, Paul said. We should not be ashamed of the hope, Psalm 119, verse 116. And therefore, somewhere in our lives, we have to, we have to muster the courage that says, while, while generally speaking, yes, we want to leave a good impression with people, do things honorably the sight of all men. We will not take that verse, that general principle, to the extent that we fail 
the marching orders of Zion. And God gave us marching orders in Mark the 16th chapter to go into all the world and to teach the gospel just as Joshua and the Israelites was to seize and to take all the land of Canaan, so it is today the church of Christ is to take the entire world for Jesus. Not politically, not physically. We're not going to go over and declare war and take lands and argue on at nighttime TV some televangelist trying to get you to give money to save the land of Israel. That's all in the Old Testament. And they are fighting the impossible. Our fight's with Satan. It's spiritual. But we are to take the whole gospel to the whole world in every generation. And someday when we stand before the captain of our salvation and give an answer to the things we've done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, here's the question to our generation. Have we fulfilled taking the world for Christ? Did we spend and invest our resources wisely in the raising up of evangelists, of elders, of deacons, have we really pushed hard to win the world to Jehovah? I think if we failed in anything, it may be that we have been very lackluster in the realm of evangelism. Christianity is not just a defensive religion. Paul would say, I am set for the defense of the gospel. But he also would tell us that we are to advance the cause. Some churches are in defensive mode. No unsound doctrine comes in, but they're dying on the vine. Every year they become less and less. They're aging out. What's happening? They're not converting anybody. It's almost as if God's providence sometimes shuts down lazy churches. Lazy churches don't last. Lukewarm churches. Y'all with me? Lukewarm churches won't last unless we are converting people. The system of death closes the doors on some places. We need to be busy about the Lord's work. We need men like Joshua to rise up who God is preparing to take the church to the entire world in our generation. When we talk about salvation, I want to make this clear. Some folk act as if you don't receive salvation until you die and go to heaven. That's not true. Some folk act like there's nothing to receive in this life. Would Paul not argue in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8, in this life and in the life to come? Now, I understand somebody can slip, fall out, fall from grace, Galatians 5, 4, and go back to the world and forfeit his salvation. Sure, many people do that. But I'm talking about when you're converted to Christ, when you're living in God's church, you are tasting and you are living in a, in a domain of a kingdom of light and of salvation. In that sense, you are living the best life that could possibly be lived in the here and the now. If you're not a Christian, you don't know what living is. Someone said, well, preacher, you don't know what I have. I don't care what you have. At the end of the day, it's all going to burn up. There was a rancher out in Texas that has said in the 1950s, I mean, he had a big expanse out there, thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. You know, there's ranches out there, 100 to 200,000 acres. And he flew Marshall Keeble over his entire ranch, about half that just kept going over it. No, he was proud of this ranch. He thought Brother Keeble was a little bit disrespectful. He really wasn't paying attention too much. I guess he probably had his mind on the sermon that night. 
He said, yeah, it's pretty nice, but he said, it's all going to burn up. And that's true. When I look around this room tonight, I see a lot of people that unless, I mean, you have the best genetics in the world, and unless you're taking vitamins by the handfuls, 20 years would take a big swath out of this place. And young ones, sometimes we go early. You go 40 more years, I'd be 83 then. Very likely, I might not even be here at 83. You go 50 or 60 years down through the telescope of time, how many people would even be in this auditorium? Our life is but a blink. When you're talking about eternity, it is true to say we are here today and gone tomorrow. Everybody here ought to have a hope that maintains their dignity and their soul salvation. And the only way to have that blessed hope is to understand the true gospel, not a perverted gospel, a true gospel. Do you know there's only one gospel? The gospel is good news. We learned growing up in Bible class that Jesus did not come to condemn the world. Do you know why that is? We were condemned by our sin. You condemn yourself. Now, the great judge of all the earth will be fair and judiciously right. When he, in that last day, banishes us from the glories of heaven and places the final verdict upon us of Gehenna hell if we've never come to him. Why? Because he was long-suffering, 2 Peter 3, 9. Why? Because he died for our sins, the scripture tells us. Why? Because he poured out his life, Isaiah 53. He did everything possible to redeem you. So if you chose not to come to him and you stayed in your sin, then now you're going to have to answer for your sin. And I know people don't understand this. Because if they did, they'd already be coming up here right now and interrupting the sermon to be baptized. Here it is. When we talk about the wrath of God, we need to understand that God does not deal with sin. We don't negotiate like we do. You ever seen little toddlers that are out of control and they're negotiating with their parents, they're hollering and they're screaming, no, not now, yes, yes, yes. And the parents are negotiating with them. God doesn't work like that. God's holy. He's above mankind to the highest extent. So here's what happens. All of, of the wrath of God coming down upon Jesus had to bear all of the, of the turmoil of that sin. The penalty for our sin. Well, if we don't come to Christ and allow that substitutionary sacrifice to redeem us, to buy us back, and we leave this world, that means you're going to have the wrath of God on you throughout eternity, which is the opposite of the blessed doctrine of hope. Hope maintains me. I have days that are a little bit discouraging as a preacher. We all have those. I'm sure every elder would say there's been a few days that think, what did I get into? But the sunlight of God's love, hope, and grace, and mercy is far greater in scope than any momentary cloud of darkness that Satan might try to use to extinguish the love of Christ in your heart. But you have to see the sun over the clouds. You have to choose. 
and take an active role in listening to God in his word. You choose tonight where you spend eternity. It's not the preacher's fault. It's not the elder's fault. They have a job to do. But at the end of the day, you choose where you live eternally. I've made many mistakes in my life. But I absolutely had enough sense to come to Christ. I know where salvation is. And tonight I ask you, will you be like the Israelites that died in the wilderness because they lost hope and belief? Or will you come to Christ and stay faithful all of your life? And will you do it because you love God and you want to live a life that reflects that genuine gratitude of thanksgiving for all that he has done for you? Someday, oh, it's going to be so grand. I, in some sense, it ought to be the case that we think of it like this. I can hardly wait to get out of here. Now, Paul was in a great betwixt, right, because he wanted to stay in the labor, but in some senses, isn't it true that we can hardly wait? We're going to stand in judgment, but if you're a faithful Christian, don't be overly fearful of that. The song is correct. It's a great day. Because God, through Christ, is going to allow the blood of His Son to remove those consequences Therefore, you're not going to have to receive the wrath of God for those sins. Oh, praise God for that. That ought to increase our singing, increase our prayers, that because of Jesus, we don't have to answer for those. He became sin for us on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5 and 20, when he took upon that sacrifice. So look at this. He had no sin, but he says he became sin. What does that mean? It means he took upon our role. He stood in our stead. But here it is. We close. Anyone here tonight that wants to fully possess salvation, live in the church, and be heaven bound, the walls of Jericho are not going to stop you. No enemy, no army, Satan, all the antagonist force in the world, nothing can separate you from the love of God if you want to go to heaven. The only one that can pluck you from the Father's hand is yourself. That's why Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I ask you a very personal question. What is keeping you from obeying the gospel? What is the reason that you have not come to Christ? A man told me one time that he could not be forgiven. We've dealt with that this morning. All sin can be forgiven through Christ. His grace is broader in scope than your transgressions. Number two, somebody said, well, I'm just not interested right now. I'll do that when I get older and I have time. The trouble is, you don't know how long you'll live. And it sounds like to me, you don't really love the Lord. Because if you're only going to serve Him when you get ready to do it and you're premeditating that out in your mind, sounds like to me you've got a real bad heart problem. Somebody told me one time they were just too busy to serve Christ. He said, I, I've just got too much business and, and too many things in life. I just don't have time. Yeah, you're too busy. And you need to reprioritize your life because to leave this earth unprepared, what would have all that busy work done for you? 
And anybody in here dies, if you think you're irreplaceable, have you ever known the earth to quit spinning because anybody dies? The guy that produced the Apple iPod phone, whatever you want to call it, he checked out, the world didn't stop. I don't think it's going to stop because of you. No hard feelings, you know. You're just not that important, brother. Through belief in Christ of the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the gospel, you can be eternally saved by putting your trust and your hope and your conviction not in the world, not in the preacher, not in, not in some good social club around town, but in the gospel of Christ. It is the power. It has the ability to save you if you'll repent and turn from your sin. And I mean turn from it. Not flirt with it, not stay in it. I mean turn from it. There should be some difficulty in that process. Confess with the mouth that he is the son of the living God, Jesus that is, and then be baptized. In baptism, the blood of Jesus is going to take away your sin. John 1, 29, Matthew 26, 28, Acts 2 and 38. Those three passages woven together are a beautiful testimony. The Lamb of God which cometh to take away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. Jesus said, I will shed my blood for many for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. And then Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for or to receive the remission of sins. And if you'll be baptized in water tonight, through belief, repentance, and confession, you'll be added to the church of Christ, Acts 2 and 47. We've got to start preaching the church again as well. We've got too many of our youngsters running over and joining Life Church and all these kinds of things. Someone said, well, preacher, at least they're going somewhere. That'd be like saying gasoline or Clorox. Well, at least they're drinking some liquids. No, you, you, Clorox, Clorox won't work. It's a liquid, but it won't work. I know there's good people in those places. We're not doubting the character of people, but I'm a gospel preacher. And the good news has to go along with the one gospel. And the one gospel is the one plan of salvation which is inclusive of the beautiful blood-bought church of our Lord that we are thankful to be citizens in. We encourage you tonight to obey the gospel. Possess the Lamb. Let Jesus, like Joshua of old, let Jesus lead you to the blessed promised land. Nothing can separate you from the love of God if you will by faith obey Him. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Stay on the straight and narrow path. And if you are a member of the church and you've gone astray, you've been out of duty, you become so discouraged you lost hope. You've maybe been negligent in attendance. Or, or maybe you brought embarrassment upon the church. Maybe you've cussed like a sailor. I don't know where that, uh, where that phrase came from, but I've heard it all my life. Maybe you had vulgar speech. Maybe you've just not been a decent, upstanding member of the church. You've committed acts of immorality. Really what you need to do. Someone says, well, let's just encourage them to start coming again. Well, it's more than that. It's more than that. It's repentance of sin. Confession of those sins and prayers on your behalf. And you'll be restored, Galatians 6 and number 1. Hope, hope, hope. Tonight, the lesson is all about hope. And this earnest expectation of seeing Jesus face to face, 1 John chapter 3, is 
is something that will become a reality someday if our ship does not lose this anchor but maintains maintain through the compass of the word of God and the hope that's in Christ, the anchor of our soul, we can make it, brethren. If COVID comes back, we can make it. If a third of the people give up and go to modern religion, we can make it, those who are left. God will always have a remnant of people. The church of Christ is here to stay. The question is, who's going to live for Jesus in the church and go to heaven? I hope I am one of those. Are you? Come as we stand and as we sing.